we should totally concede this obvious point. I don't know why this is a point that has been made by some people that we know that we need institutions. We need institutions that we can rely on, that we can trust. Um, and we can't only figure this out through substacks and through this infinite division and you know all, all these different branches on Substack and podcasts where everyone has their hot takes on vaccines and all these things. That, 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 that's a totally dysfunctional model, right? To have this much division, this many infinite sources of information. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein and I have the pleasure of sitting this afternoon with Rav Arora, who is an independent journalist and he is part of the joint partnership called Illusion of Consensus on Substack with Jay Bhattacharya. Welcome to Dark Horse, uh, Rav. Hey, Brett. It's great to be here. Awesome. So um, you and I have been talking informally over the course of many months on a number of different topics. And um, you impressed upon me that some of these topics needed a wider exploration, for example, here on Dark Horse. So let's talk first about how it is that you find yourself in journalism, and then we'll get to some of the topics that uh, you and I find uh, jointly interesting. Sure. Sure. So just to paint a broad picture, I graduated in 2019 and didn't know what the fuck I was doing with my life um, and was very creative into writing, into reading, into debating and looking at things critically. And then BLM happened in 2020, the George Floyd tragedy. And there I saw a big vacuum in mainstream media in covering these events, honestly. Um, and so I started writing about uh, identity politics and white privilege claims about systemic racism, group disparities, and particularly police shootings and inner city violence, and put out a couple of big pieces that I, I had no idea what I was getting into, but it, they ended up doing really, really well. A lot of people saw it at the time. Um, a lot of people in the formerly intellectual dark web kind of circulated in, in those in those groups. And after being quite successful at writing about identity politics and criminal justice and police violence in particular in the New York Post, Quillette, and the Globe and Mail primarily. I just kept on going on that path and writing more and more, doing podcasts. And long do story- Do you want to just summarize for people in the audience sure. who may not be familiar with that work, um, what was the general tenor of your exploration of uh, the social justice scene. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, and this actually relates to some of the COVID stuff is the perception on a lot of these hot button topics like police violence, like racial disparities was very different from what was actually going on, right? If you pull liberals and progressives on how many, on how many black men are killed as a result of police violence, how many, uh, black men are the victims of, of police shootings, you find that the people surveyed in these polls, their estimates are 10x, 100x more than what the actual number often is. And so there's this vast disparity in perceptions and reality. And that's a very interesting topic to explore because you have the media that's participating in this kind of gaslighting and this exaggeration of the, the statistics. And mentioning of the statistics would often get you canceled or be quite controversial. And so 
that was kind of an area that I was I was talking about was that what the mainstream media is presenting and what politicians and liberal activists are saying on this front is very different from what's actually going on. And as we'll get into with the COVID stuff, the only reason why I was able to succeed on that front was because there was a serious problem with how journalism was being conducted. And there was a big room for someone like myself, a 20-year-old nobody, to come in and say something that a lot of other journalists weren't saying. Now, obviously, I wasn't the only one. There's guys like Coleman Hughes who I've kind of followed a little bit in their footsteps. But there was a clear space to talk honestly about these things when you can't trust the New York Times the way you could have a few years ago on some of these topics. And, and that directly leads into the COVID stuff as well. Yes. Uh, I did want to point out, I, I think it will be um, <clears throat> an interesting counterpoint to things that may come up here later. But I thought one of the best explorations of this that I encountered in that time was actually by Sam Harris, who I'm sure you remember the podcast that he did yep. in which he went painstakingly through the statistics and compared them to people's beliefs and expectations on this topic. And it was absolutely stark, the distinction between what people thought was going on and yes. what's actually going on, absolutely. which then suggests that we live in an environment in which people's beliefs can become paramount above and beyond reality. And it can motivate, you know, social movements, for example, which is a frightening prospect. It's exactly the kind of thing right. um, that you would want reliable institutions to prevent by saying, as much as we may suspect X, the truth is really Y. That's an important role to play. And it's interesting <laughs> that many of um, the institutions mm -hmm. you would have expected to play that role instead threw gasoline on the fire and uh, just simply amplified yeah. people's, uh, people's uh, distortions. Right. And interesting on that example, and I, absolutely condemn I condemned Sam at the or commended Sam at the time for what he did and that was excellent but interesting on that example like the BLM stuff and police violence the quote unquote expert class on that topic was was and is completely wrong right and that that expert class doesn't include Glenn Lowry John McWhorter who are also very sophisticated intellectuals Thomas Sowell but that expert class of Michael Eric Dyson um, Ibram X. Kendi, Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, you know, I mean, I mean, take your pick. I mean, go, go to any elite college university and things like white privilege, systemic racism, there being an epidemic of police violence is in their sociology journals. It's, it's absolutely institutionalized as these kind of sacred truths on race that someone like Sam at the time and myself and others were questioning and saying, hey, these chosen gurus on race and slavery and the legacy of racism these guys are wrong and that and that's respectable when you look at what the experts are saying and recognize that they're wrong and here's actually what's 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 really going on and the bravery and courage that comes with questioning the experts on a given topic yeah it's uh it's a pattern that uh i think we can see readily across many topics at the moment but it's really that there are two kinds of experts. There are anointed experts, and then there are off-label experts. And the off-label experts are obviously going to be mixed in some sense. They're going to have a diversity of opinions, some of them maybe not so great. But 
the interesting feature of the present as we experience it is that the anointed experts seem to be wrong about everything. It's, uh, it's, a, it's the most remarkable fact there is. And so, you know, you named a good list of people who were quite insightful on this topic as it was happening. Um, but, you know, somehow they, it's like they don't reflect in the mirror. Our first sponsor for this episode is The Wellness Company. World-renowned experts like Dr. Peter McCullough have partnered with The Wellness Company to create real change in healthcare. They offer a wide variety of supplements and services, including telehealth and emergency medical kits containing ivermectin, and teams of medical professionals that can assist in helping patients kick the pharmaceutical habit with their Freedom from Pharma program. The Wellness Company has all sorts of useful and important products. Try their mito-support, as in mitochondria, which is formulated to provide energy, both physical and mental. They also have spike support formula, which is their most popular product. It is not only useful for those who have been vac vaccinated, but for anyone who may be suffering from long COVID as well. As the wellness company says on their website, if you're looking to get back to that pre-COVID feeling, their spike support formula can help. Spike support is made with a combination of natural ingredients like natokinase, dandelion root extract, selenium, black sativa extract, Irish sea moss, and green tea extract. These ingredients all contain immune-boosting capabilities, and the natokinase specifically has been used by the Japanese for decades because of its ability to dissolve blood clots. But more recently, natokinase has been shown to be able to break down spike protein in the bloodstream and even block them from binding to cells. Dr. McCullough says, Out of all the available therapies I've used in my practice, and among all the proposed de detoxification agents, I believe natokinase and related peptides hold the greatest promise for patients. Whether you've taken the vaccine or just had COVID, if you're concerned about circulating spike proteins, go to twc.health slash darkhorse and use the code darkhorse to save 15% off your first order. That's twc.health slash darkhorse, code darkhorse to save 15%. Our second sponsor is Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley makes a huge range of products from supplements like fish roe and organ complex, grass-fed bone broth protein, and superfood bars. Everything we've tried from them has been terrific, including their golden milk, which is made with tons of turmeric. But we're going to talk today about beef sticks. The beef in these delicious snacks comes from small American-owned farms that practice rotational grazing. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are 100% grass-fed and finished, entirely organic, and naturally fermented. 100% grass-fed beef is more nutritious than grain-fed beef in many ways, including that it contains more calcium, magnesium, potassium, zinc, phosphorus, beta-carotene, and iron. It's also delicious. If you're thinking that Paleo Valley's beef sticks are like Slim Jims, you're wrong. For one thing, unlike Slim Jims, Paleo Valley beef sticks contain no mechanically separated chicken parts. For another, Paleo Valley's beef sticks are actually good for you. Ingredients hiding in most beef sticks and jerky include MSG, hormones, hydrogenated oils, and brominated vegetable oil, which, if you're wondering, was first patented as a flame retardant. It's now in a lot of food, but you won't find it if you buy Paleo Valley. Furthermore, unlike other meat snacks, Paleo Valley uses natural fermentation to preserve its beef sticks. This gives the beef sticks a long shelf life without the use of harmful acids and chemicals and with the added benefit of contributing to a healthy gut. Paleo Valley beef sticks are also keto-friendly keto and make a great protein-rich snack to grab when you are on the go, like running out the door for a meeting or going on a bike ride. 
Paleo Valley doesn't cut corners either. They source only the highest quality ingredients and are passionate not only about human health, but also about environmental restoration and animal welfare as well. They are a family-owned company. Try Paleo Valley's beef sticks today. You won't be sorry. Head over to paleovalley.com slash darkhorse for 15% off your first order. Right. The only experts that make a difference are the ones that have been uh, almost ordained in some sacred order in which they are allowed to hold forth on a topic because we know what they're going to say. They're going to say exactly what is necessary to reinforce uh, a suspicion the public has that may be dead wrong. Right. Right. And there's different ways to get into the COVID stuff. But on, on that on that front, I think it's important to say when it came to expertise with BLM and the, the way in which that was conducted and now with COVID, there's been, I think, a big mistake among many people in podcastistan and media alternative conservative like it doesn't matter which political affiliation but there's been a big mistake on the part of the public in thinking that the experts in the relevant areas in epidemi epidemiology and immunology agree on the fundamental points right that i think was a big big mistake i mean you have a big spectrum of experts peter hotez eric topol nicholas christakis martin koldorf Tracy Bethog, Vinay Prashad, Jay Bhattacharya, and then you can go on, you know, Robert Malone, Peter McCullough, et cetera, et cetera. You have this interesting range. And, e and even if you want to put aside Malone, McCullough, we, we can talk about them, but even if you want to put them aside and you only want to pick, you know, experts at Stanford and Harvard and our elite universities, and so you end up with Jay, Martin, Marty McCary from Hopkins, Tracy Bethog, uh, Dr. Latipo from uh, Harvard, who's now Florida Surgeon General. It's like those guys and Eric Topol, Peter Hotez, Nicholas Krasakis, many people who understandably I would have also defaulted to potentially at the very, very start, like Eric Topol, rock solid credentials, Nicholas Krasakis, great respect for him before the pandemic and at the start. But those guys completely disagreed with this other set of experts on the most fundamental questions on lockdowns, on vaccine mandates, on vaccine safety, right? If you if you got those people together in a room, you would find what Dr. Jay Bhattacharya has to say, or Martin Koldorf has to say, and Martin is one of the foremost experts on vaccine safety. I mean, if you really want to play the, the expert game, there are some people who are trained in vaccine safety. I'd put Martin um, as one of the highest people in that group. They took a very different line than Dr. Eric Topol did in terms of what's really going on with vaccine injuries. And, and we can talk about the specifics of that. But I think that's been a fundamental error is grouping, well, the experts say this on vaccines. The experts say this on lockdowns. It's like, which experts? Uh, the anointed ones. And, and that's really the point is that you will be anointed if you say things that are not discordant. And there, and you will be sidelined, and worse, you will be stigmatized as a uh, what was the term with Jay, a fringe epidemiologist. Um, yeah, you know, it doesn't matter what your credential is. That's that's the most remarkable feature of all is that many of the people who were stigmatized as fringe quacks are actually at the top of their fields. These are yeah. the leaders, the most insightful folks. And the point is, nobody is immune from those stigmas in the effort to create, well, you know, as your uh, substack alludes to, the illusion of consensus. And that, that's really what it is, is if you're not on message, 
you will in one way be one way or another you will be sidelined and that will leave the impression that there is broad agreement and the only way you would get to broad agreement is if it was obvious that something was true so it results in the public that doesn't know how this game is working concluding quite incorrectly that there is not a diversity of of opinion amongst people who know what they're talking about yeah yeah and this goes right back to the start of the pandemic right like how deadly is covid who's really at risk the people that were chosen by the Atlantic, the New York Times, etc., were were of a certain type who were saying things like, I mean, even down to just 1% of people are dying of COVID. And that was something Dr. Nicholas Christakis was saying on Sam Harris's podcast as late as late 2021, I believe. That, that, that was wrong. That was wrong in like summer of 2020. That was wrong in, 20, in 2021. And, and again, if you want to play the expert game, someone like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Dr. John Yanidis, one of the most credentialed, cited people, Dr. John Yanidis, who was doing the surveys and analyses on infection fatality rate. And Dr. Jay and John at Stanford were authoring these studies at the very, very start and finding that, oh, the number of people that are actually infected with COVID is far bigger than what we thought. Therefore, the um, the the denominator of total people of people infected is far far bigger. Therefore, the fatality rate is far far lower than what we thought. So it wasn't one percent. It wasn't two percent. They found, I believe, early on zero point two percent, zero point one percent, with a very sharp age gradient, with very few, like almost not impossible, but very very difficult to find cases under thirty with no comorbidities or you know, even older people with no comorbidities, right? And those people were demonized from the very, very start for doing that research, whereas other people were looking at other metrics and studies that didn't take a proper account of how many people were actually infected with COVID. And therefore, you have people, uh, you know, like Sam Harris reading the New York Times, trusting Nicholas Christakis and hearing, oh, one in 100 people are dying of COVID? Oh, sh- holy crap. What? 1% of people? It's like, no, no, no. That, that's not actually the reality. It's actually far, far lower than that. And years after the fact, it is now clear that A, there was a systematic statistical attempt to increase the impression of lethality in the virus, that basically counting people who died with COVID but not of COVID or even counting people who didn't have COVID at all as COVID deaths was a mechanism to create this fear which caused us to overreact. It's really like the bee sting that doesn't kill you, but the overreaction of your immune system to it does. But beyond that, there is also the jaw-dropping fact of the protocols that were deployed for those who were in dire need of help because they had severe COVID seems to have killed an awful lot of people also creating the impression that this was a much deadlier disease than it actually turned out to be. So um, I do not know with any certainty how to read that. But one possible read is that something wanted us terrified so that we would allow a much more aggressive response to this than we should have, that we made COVID vastly more destructive in ways that are both direct by giving bad medical advice uh, as to what to do if you contracted COVID, um, but also lots of collateral damage from the shutting down of civilization, um, from uh, the breaking of normal developmental patterns in children, um, the 
causing people to stay indoors where the virus does spread rather than go outdoors where it doesn't spread and where they would make vitamin D, which would make them safer, make them less likely to contract it and more likely to survive it if they did contract it. So we did everything wrong. And it's possible that that was just the most mind-blowing series of incompetent decisions the universe has ever seen. Or it's possible yeah. that actually something wanted this to be worse than it actually was because it had an ulterior motive. I, I still right. don't know to this day, but it's hard for me to believe incompetence could have gotten us here. And I guess the last thing I would say on yeah. that is mention a list of people who were heterodox when it came to social justice, yeah. who then fumbled the ball with respect yes. To COVID, and I find that a fascinating pattern. People who were perfectly yes. capable of standing up to a false consensus, who yes. just in the case of COVID, absolutely fell in line and got it all wrong. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. There, there, there's a lot to be said there. I mean, it's you know, I, I'm inclined to just default to incompetence a lot of times, but the problem is a lot of mistakes can't logically be chalked down to just incompetence, right? You have January 2021, Rochelle Walensky emailing, I believe, um, I'm forgetting who else is in this email, um, head of the NIH at the time. Uh, Collins? Collins, yeah. I believe Collins is in the email. I think Fauci might have been in the email. Anyway, she put out this email and said, oh, we're hearing about breakthrough cases. Can you please tell us more about this? We're realizing a lot of people who um, got the vaccine are still getting COVID, right? Yet, Five, six months later, MSNBC on CDC press releases saying you get the vaccine and you become a dead end to the virus. It's like you yep. knew there was an issue there, right? Same thing with myocarditis, right? In, um, I want to say March or April of 2021, same, same official CDC, Rochelle Walensky says, we've looked at millions of cases of, of uh, vaccine administration and this concern of, of myocarditis, we've looked at it carefully, and we haven't found a serious statistically significant risk on that front. Later on, they backtrack and say, oh, well, actually, there is a concern, but, you know, the risk of, of COVID outweighs uh, myocarditis, which is uh, honestly so, so wrong on a number of different levels. And we can talk about that. But repeatedly, there have been errors made where it's like, you knew you could do better. You knew the facts, and yet you still openly misled the public on what was really going on. I mean, again, so many, so many examples on vaccine safety, on pregnant women should be getting this, six months old should be, should be getting this. It's safe and effective when we neither know about safety nor long-term effectiveness. There wasn't even an approach that many European countries took of let's really focus on high-risk groups and arguably you know, give it to them where we see most amount of benefit. Everyone else... Um, you know, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. You know, the initial trials say that the COVID vaccines reduce symptomatic infection for the first few months. We don't know about long-term, you know, we didn't test mortality, so we, we can't really tell long-term on severe COVID, although there was some data afterwards that seemed to have suggested that. But we don't know about safety. We're not really sure. And, 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 and this actually goes, you know, we can kind of segue into some of the recent news of like people recently who kind of bought this mainstream information on COVID uncritically and understandably fell victim to some of the stuff and now have recently come out and said, oh, that was a mistake. There's a number of examples. A lot of people know about this. 
Uh, Megan Kelly recently saying she went to her doctor and got t- tested positive for <clears throat> for some kind of autoimmune issue. Now she was vague about it, so I don't know what the details are. But she asked her doctor about could this be related to the vaccine because there is certainly a link between COVID, the mRNA vaccines, and certain autoimmune conditions. And the doctor said something like. Yes, it could definitely be possible. A lot of people with the vaccine have been getting this. Now, obviously, we don't know for sure. It could be totally unrelated. But, you know, Megan said at the time um, in this recent interview that she basically regrets getting the vaccine at the time um, and not making a smarter decision. Same thing with Vivek Ramaswamy, a Republican uh, candidate for the presidency, um, talking about how he got the the first two shots and regrets taking it in light of what we know about the myocarditis risk, which is concentrated in younger males. And he happens to be, I believe, in his late 30s. Uh, and then Elon Musk recently saying that his third booster shot almost landed him in the hospital. Right. And, and I believe he's also talked, Elon, about how I believe um, some family relative, their son, who I believe is, uh, is an adolescent male, got myocarditis after the vaccine. Tons and tons of these stories. And, and this relates to, I'll just say one last thing, to a recent piece that I did with Dr. Anish Koka in Philadelphia. He runs a leading cardiology clinic and his clinic administered the mRNA vaccines in, in big numbers, mostly to elderly uh, people, mostly people over 60, 65, but some people under the age of 20 and 30, some younger people involved. And I, I spoke to him, and he's been very honest on this topic. He himself is double-vaxxed and boosted, as well as his wife. And one of his daughters, I believe, is immunocompromised. So he was very worried about COVID. Not at all a conspiracy theorist, very reasonable, smart guy, pro-vaccine generally. He told me up front, he said, in light of all this information that's come out on the myocarditis front, I regret, I seriously regret giving this vaccine especially to younger people and violating their informed consent when at that time we did not know about safety and efficacy the way we know certain things now, right? At that time, I was wrong to give this out knowing that these people were at very low risk, you know, may not have had comorbidities or were immunocompromised. And I gave it to them without being absolutely certain about the safety profile. And that, that to me is a level of honesty, whether it's Megan Kelly, Elon, Vivek, but this in particular Dr. Nishkoka saying that he would have done differently if he could you know, change his decision now. That, that is what you call epistemic humility, right? I was wrong at the time, and now my views have changed, and now I'm going to look at the world differently. Here is how my narrative has changed. Here is how the system in which I use to uh, understand reality and, and analyze data has changed, and I'm a human. I get things wrong. We all get things wrong. So here's how I'm going to act differently. Not this other frankly bullshit of like oh at that time i was actually right because that's what the data said now things have changed but i was right at the time and i was right and i was appropriately worried along every step of the way because that's what the fda and the cdc and eric tobel were saying therefore i was right at the time it's like no no own up to at that time you being wrong about some very serious things and that's okay to be wrong because we're humans and we get things wrong all the time wrong And one of the things that they were wrong about was the reliability of the messaging that was supposedly derived from the data, which we now know it was wrong because we have better information. But, you know, 
the the Megan Kelly situation um, is interesting for me. You you probably do not know, but I remember vividly that Megan Kelly had me on her show, right. and she took me to task for a tweet that I had made, and I had already corrected it. I had deleted it, reposted it, and explained that I had made an error in my tweet, but that the theme of the tweet was still one that I believed in. My claim in the tweet was that virtually everybody that I had talked to who had gotten the vaccines had a story to tell about a reaction and that a lot of this was frightening. It turned out there were a few people that I had forgotten that I had talked to, so it wasn't quite as extreme as I had said. But nonetheless, I did have an incredible number of conversations with people who did not volunteer that they had had a adverse uh, reaction until I asked them, at which point I found out. So my point had been, yeah. you have to ask in order to know how common these adverse reactions are. And when you do, you'll find out they're very, very common. In any case, Megan Kelly gave me a hard time over this. I thought she was fair about it, but uh, it, was a, it was a difficult interview. Yeah. And then there's a question about, well, how much of a coincidence is it that years down the road, she herself is now mm. reporting a severe adverse event? And I, I can't, you know, obviously any individual case could be a coincidence, but the fact is I also, other people that I have tangled with over yeah. the safety of these vaccines also have people in their immediate circle who have had very yeah. serious adverse events. Yes. And so in any case, the, the real point is the number of adverse events here is truly staggering. It is truly staggering such that it, uh, if mm -hmm. we look around our circle and evaluate honestly, it is touching all of us. Right? Yeah, yeah. Th there's a lot I have to say about this. Cause so, so this leads to, and we should close the loop on how you know I got into this on the COVID front. Um, so, 2021 vaccine mandates start getting pushed in my province, BC, and federally in Canada. You start seeing this in the U.S. as well. Um, basically, you know, mandates of you know, I couldn't exercise at a gym, couldn't leave the country, couldn't get on an airplane or a train or weddings, large gatherings, number of different places for not getting the vaccine. And me at the time, I completely going in with a blank slate as much as possible, right, on the stuff and being like, okay, what, what's the risk? What's the benefit? And one of the first people I spoke to was Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, which eventually led to our collaboration on, on Substack now. But he was one of the first people I spoke to because I, in attempts to try to make sense of what was going on, just on the raw data, hearing about the risk of myocarditis first being reported in Israel and then by the U.S. military, I was very concerned about that particular risk and how high it was and who it's affecting. And when I spoke to Jay, you know, when I had all these concerns, he was able to validate them and say, yeah, yeah, these are these are real concerns. And unfortunately, the CDC and the FDA and Health Canada and Biden and uh, the U.S. Surgeon General are not actually taking this seriously. Like like there, there is something here that needs to be uh, taken seriously. But these experts are not talking about it in an honest way. And. So that right away was like, oh, okay, okay, that doesn't make sense. Why, why am I being mandated to take a shot where there's a unknown slash unclear slash uh, concerning risk of myocarditis that's at that point was not really defined, not properly stratified, but we had some, we had, we had some rough indication of what was going on. 
And then at that point, I just started kind of looking around and just started hearing about serious adverse events of uh, young boys, uh, a couple of young males in my city, as well as one individual in particular who I later interviewed on on the Substack. Pe- people can go check it out on the Illusion of Consensus. A 38-year-old law enforcement member. Um, it's kind of a long story, but the short of it is he was mandated to take the vaccine as a, someone working in a federally regulated industry, right? law enforcement, the, the RCMP. And got his first shot, had some chest complaints that went, eventually went away, got his second Pfizer shot, and had this excruciating chest pain um, a few days afterwards, was in Victoria at the time, Victoria, BC. And he thought that it you know, might have been a, a virus or something he ate. And then his girlfriend forced him to call the ambulance. The ambulance came. His heart rate was something crazy, like 180, 190, maybe 200. Um, a r- 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 uh, really high number and got you know sent to the hospital right away. And the cardiologist um, right away said, this is from the vaccine. And and, and that's from what he said is, is kind of a rare thing because other people that he had heard about, um, this law enforcement member happened, he himself happened to hear about a couple of other cases where people had gotten myocarditis um, right after the vaccine, a few days or weeks, and their cardiologist refused to say that this was from the vaccine. Yet in this particular hospital, it, it appears that this individual lucked out because the Victoria Hospital has a specialized cardiology unit. So they were able to take care of him right away and they had the relevant specific experts to to look after it. But fast forward to six months to a year later, he's still ailing from this condition, not fully recovered, hasn't gone back to his job um, for months, couldn't exercise, couldn't go to a gym. He was a very healthy guy. And that, so hearing about stories like that and then writing about it, for me, it was like kind of a bit of an awakening, like, oh, people are being actually harmed by these shots. And why am I hearing about it so much? Am I just an an unlucky person or just, is this some weird coincidence where I just happen to hear of these? I mean, that's possible. It could be. I I wondered the same. I wondered the same thing. Am I, am I the only one? And then I started looking around, asking other people, and then this relates to some other stuff too. The I was also hearing about the menstrual irregularities, right? Virtually all of these sort of young uh, women in my circles from friends and family members and relatives, I, I would say the vast majority of them that I knew about, and I started asking around awkwardly like, hey, is this a thing or you know, what's going on? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, this, you know, this happened to me. I had serious vaginal bleeding and menstrual you know, irregularities. I remember tweeting about this like, I'm hearing a lot about this. What's going on here? And people left and right were saying, this is completely unsupported. There's no data. This is conspiracy theory. And then I remember at the time, my friend Ricky Schlott, who uh, has a book coming out with Greg, uh, Greg Lukianoff, she writes for the New York Post. She went. She came to my defense on Twitter and said, hey, guys, stop piling on RAV. This actually happened to me. And I'm at the time 20, 20, 20, 20 or 21 and saying, this happened to me and lots of my female friends. We experienced severe menstrual irregularities and public health has not acknowledged us and we're concerned about what what's going on here and so the the totality of all of these anecdotes for me was enough to push for, for me was enough to take a serious look at, at at the facts and the data and to be very very suspicious and skeptical 
of what public health was saying, right? Even as previously someone who got all the vaccines, someone as recent as senior year of high school, which, you know, wasn't that long ago, it was, it was 2019, you know, the, the school said that, oh, we, we have the flu shot coming in. Um, the nurses are downstairs. You can go and get it. And I just, you know, gave a quick call to my mom. Hey, the flu shot's available. Can I take it? She's like, yeah, go for it. I was like, great. Didn't think about it once. Went and got my flu. Like, I've, I've always been very pro-vaccine, never been yep. skeptical on any of this stuff. But suddenly this totality of, not not a totality, but th this initial exposure to these deeply troubling anecdotes pushed me in this direction of investigating this further. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a parallel story. Um, I was a very strong believer in the utility of vaccines. I was never a believer that they were inherently safe. It's a preposterous thing to imagine, but I was not nearly skeptical enough of the safety profile of vaccines until COVID happened and the lies here were just too blatant to ignore. Um, and I would also point out that <clears throat> all of the things you're describing, all of these young people who were given these vaccines, that was all predicated on the idea that we were trying to reach herd immunity and that it was therefore necessary to vaccinate everyone, which is why ostensibly they did not age stratify the recommendations. But the problem is they apparently knew that at best they'd had no evidence that these things stop transmission, which of course they don't. And at worst, they knew and pretended that it stopped transmission, hence the claim that the virus stops with you, et cetera, which you mentioned earlier. Right. So right. they only had evidence for the first couple of months that transmission reduced significantly. It uh, certainly was no basis to think you could control this virus yeah. by getting yeah. uh, full penetration with these vaccines. Yeah. So um, the idea that in light of that, the unknowns were not sufficient for us to keep these vaccines from being inflicted on people who faced very little risk from the disease itself is a um, monstrous oversight, to say the least. As you pointed out earlier in our discussion, the people who suffer from the vaccine injuries are different from the people who suffer from yes. the, uh, the viral injuries and therefore um, to the extent that there was any argument at all for these vaccines, it could have been limited to people who stood in principle to gain something. And it did yeah. not need to be given to people who could have faced uh, COVID, gotten a much more robust immunity uh, from their infection, and not faced the risk of a serious adverse event. That would right. have been the obvious way to handle it. And there's something unholy about what appears to be a insatiable desire to inject the maximum number of doses of especially mm -hmm. mRNA vaccines mm -hmm. possible, irrespective of any medical or epidemiological justification. Yeah. Yeah. I, I should go back to so the, the journalistic uh, journey that I've been on. So um, started hearing about these cases and I wanted to write about these in many of the places I was writing for, and I've deliberately not named any editors or any publications where this is going on. I don't want to get into any big wars with legacy media outlets or anything, or, or even alternative outlets, but I, I tried to publish on this front and long story short, I couldn't. The message I explicitly was given was that we are a pro vaccine publication. We're not going to publish this. 
our paper encourages vaccinations. We don't want to promote vaccine hesitancy. We don't think this is conducive to the public discourse, to the, the, the epidemiological research, even though a lot of these articles featured uh, people like Dr. Jay Bhattacharya and Vinay Prashad, uh, Martin Koldorf, other people. And that, I mean, that to me was just another um, shock was like, okay, so here's a problem and I want to write about it, but there's another problem here that the institutions don't want us to talk about this honestly. The institutions that, again, I'm, I'm being vague here, but previously allowed dissent on the social justice stuff. And when we know some of those institutions, we know some of those people personally, yep. um, but these places allowed dissent on this stuff, but not here. And there's been some recent things that I've uncovered, actually, I'm going to go into that briefly of, actually, I found out recently that, um, I don't know if you know about this, Brett, um, um, I'm curious what your thoughts would be on this, but places like the New York Times, the New York Post, uh, Washington Post, many other mainstream publications were actually paid by the federal government to promote the COVID vaccines. They were paid explicitly paid you have here's an advertisement from the cdc and the fda why vaccines are beneficial for kids and adults and here's why you should get it so isn't that a serious conflict of interest that we should be talking about like can we really rely on the atlantic and the new york times for coverage on vaccine injuries when those same places are being paid by the government who are you know have deals with pfizer and moderna and all these complex uh, networks between the fda and pharmaceutical companies to promote these products that's fascinating i mean several things you've said are fascinating the idea that that publications were being paid to advocate for vaccines which made it impossible for them to do journalism um the statement we are a pro-vaccine publication what could that possibly mean? I mean? This goes back to my point about whatever you think about vaccines. And, you know, until um, 2021, I thought vaccines uh, were among the greatest medical successes in history. Um, I now question that based on uh, a great deal more evidence than I had at the time. But there is no argument that they are inherently safe because there have been numerous examples where vaccines have turned out to be very dangerous. And therefore the idea that a publication would express a general uh, stance on vaccines, thereby making it impossible for them to call into question a bad vaccine or call into question the process that leaves a bad vaccine on the market. That's a shocking uh, declaration of allegiance with no um, scientific justification whatsoever. So yeah, what you're talking about, the, the paying of publications um, to embrace a particular vaccine, especially one about which almost nothing is known because it's brand new, that is, I'm, I'm groping <coughs> for the example. You know, the only thing I come up with is the payola scandal, but in the payola scandal, it was uh, music that was artificially being hyped, the danger of which is much less than, mm -hmm. you know, a uh, pseudouridine stabilized lipid nanoparticle coated mRNA encoding a cytotoxic protein, right? That's a recipe for disaster. And to, to pay mm -hmm. publications to shill for it 
is a shocking breach of the public trust to say the very least. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that response I was getting from publications was quite shocking and quite disorienting and led to my migration on Substack, which I, I had no interest in doing. I, I, I know at some point Clyde Rathbun from Substack, who's fantastic. I, I think you're in touch with him as well. Um, he's, he's great. He, I think he reached out to me and we were talking about getting me on Substack and I was like, no, hell no. I, I don't want Substack because I like having someone to, you know, to edit my work and to fact check and to go through this process. And I like having someone for accountability. Like I, I generally like collaboration and being in an institution, to be honest. Um, you know, they say t too much freedom equals tyranny. Like you want some sort of guidelines and regulations and people to keep you accountable. But I was left with no choice, Brett. I, I had to go to Substack because the message I was getting was we're not going to publish this work. Um, but, you know, in some cases it was like, feel free to keep sending us stories about cancel culture and identity politics. It's like, it's just like, what? Like, I mean, th those are serious topics and I'll talk about them anytime and I'm happy to. But this idea that I'm only going to just endlessly write about cancellations at universities and the next social justice fad, it's like, this is a really serious issue and I want to write about it. And it led to many, many months of frustration and lost income and just, I mean, I, I, I look back on that and I have so much gratitude for where I'm at right now with this pro project with Jay and, and, and having the kind of platform that's growing that I do right now, because there were many, many months where I was like, fuck. I can't write at these these places that I wanted to, um, and now I have to go independent. I had a very small audience, but thankfully, you know, some people have been, you know, kind to me in promoting things. You know, Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, and amplifying certain things, and so th that's been kind of the journey over the past uh, year. A couple years has been going on Substack and writing about issues like vaccine myocarditis, side effects, mandates. Where again, it's like you. You know, these topics, if you had told me, Brett, three years ago or even two years ago, or you know, it was 2021 in the summer when the mandates were introduced. So if you told me a bit more than two years ago, Rav, you'll be primarily writing about myocarditis, a word I probably didn't even hear about till 2021, to be honest, um, and vaccines. It was a pretty rare condition. Well, well, well yeah, yeah. And so... I, I had no interest in vaccines. I, you know, stayed away from like I, I took science courses in high school, but I, I wasn't very good at them, to be honest. Physics. I, I, I failed grade 12 biology, by the way, which is <laughs> not something I should probably advertise. But I, in grade, grade 12, I took on like every AP course and biology was the one that I hated the most. And I ended up failing it. And that, that's a long story. I should stop advertising openly on the Dark Horse <laughs> podcast. Well, but... I, I, I will say, uh, you know, you are far from the first person yeah. who's told me they didn't think they had any aptitude for biology. Yeah. And, you know, if you dig deeply in those stories, inevitably, it's about bad biology teaching, which is yeah. all too common. I'll... Yeah, I mean, I'll concede I was just a bad student at the time, and I was I was interested in doing well on AP literature and uh, civics and math and calculus, but not anyway. Um, I so so I mean so, so this this is a relevant question I think when it comes to some of the macro stuff is why do you have people like me writing about this? Why do I feel the need to write about vaccine safety, like a topic that I have no expertise in, no inherent interest in? Why do I feel like I have to cover this topic? Why is there a space for me to write about this topic, right? Someone like me, there is no utility or space for someone like me to enter into the discussion on heart inflammation caused by the vaccine if 
you had the New York Times and the CDC and the FDA honestly talking about this, right? I wouldn't be interested in talking about this, nor would there be any need for me to talk about this. No one would be reading my work because you already have the CDC and the New York Times to trust. But you've turned so many people um, into you know, thinkers on this topic, like pe people who never would have been interested in this stuff. I mean, you know, why, why is, you know, why is Joe Rogan talking about this? Why am I talking about this? Why? I mean, you're a biologist, so you're a little more relevant, but, but even you, you weren't talking about vaccines to the extent you are right now. And the reason for that is, is because the public health messaging has been so disastrously wrong on this front that you, you know, we have this need for Substack. We have the, we, we, there's a real space for podcasters to come in and to present a narrative that's very different from what the public health and what the public health um, dogma is. And it's, it's, it's honestly, I mean, put, putting aside whatever pat on the back I want to give myself for being an honest and you know, whatever journalist on this front and hopefully providing honest coverage. But it's, it, it's honestly quite tragic that I feel like my coverage on vaccine injuries and vaccine mandates has been better and more in line with the signs than the CDC. It's like, why is that? Why, why, why is a 22 year old, nobody previously uh, until a couple of years ago, someone with no, no PhDs or degrees in epidemiology, immunology suddenly feels like he himself and many people reading me and many people taking me seriously view, viewing my work as more credible than the CDC, right? Th that's not my fault. That's not the fault of Joe Rogan. That's the fault of the CDC and the FDA and mainstream experts chosen by the New York Times. Yes, and if I can uh, look at the same picture from a slightly different angle, what you have is a system that is not trying to figure out what is true and certainly uninterested in sharing the information with the public where it knows. That's the alarming discovery is that whether this is runaway noble lies or whether this is actually a an ulterior motive that has taken over the system the reason that you uh, i won't describe you as a you know 20 something nobody the way you've described yourself but the reason that you as effectively an amateur are able to beat the pants off the cdc is because the cdc isn't trying Something has captured the CDC yeah. and the CDC has a higher priority than figuring out what's true and broadcasting it. And many of us have discovered this, which is why you have the odd fact of the high quality analysis is now outside the institutions. You have lots of doctors who, if you look at their Wikipedia page, these are fringe quacks. If you look at their CV, you discover they're anything but fringe quacks. These are people who are top of their field, who have now given up careers in many cases in order to speak the truth on these topics. Where are they speaking the truth? On something called a podcast, a totally unregulated uh, yeah. well, environment. With Brett, as, as, as you know, might be regulated in Canada. <laughs> well, yeah, I that's, guess that's, I, another, that's another story for another podcast. But yeah, I have to update my model. But yeah. The, the idea that Substack and podcasts are where the high quality analysis is going to be tells you how deeply sick the system that is supposed yep. to be doing that analysis actually is. It's really, um, you know, it's in its death throes. And 
many of us are out here trying to warn people. The system that's supposed to be protecting you is actually steering you into danger. Yeah, yeah, and, and we should totally concede this obvious point. I don't know why this is a point that has been made by some people that we know that we need institutions. We need institutions that we can rely on, that we can trust, um, and we can't only figure this out through substacks and through this infinite division and you know all, all these different branches on Substack and podcasts where everyone has their hot takes on vaccines and all these things. That, 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 that's a totally dysfunctional model, right? To have this much division, this many infinite sources of information, everyone with their own experts. I don't think there's anyone that disagrees, anyone reasonable that I know of that disagrees with this um, position that we need institutions and that Substack and podcasting is a dysfunctional default to go to for complex topics pertaining to our health, right? I won't call it dysfunctional because it has been a lifesaver. But what I will say- Well, well dysfunctional in the, in the long term. If the institutions oh. continue to fail us and we have 20 different podcasts to listen to and we can't ever trust the CDC and the FDA anymore, that to me is completely dysfunctional, right? Well, it it is no substitute for institutions. Yes. That work. That said, there are those um, in our various circles who say that the importance of institutions is so great that even if they are failing, we must listen to them and not listen to the people who've shown a track record of being right on Substack and podcasts. And that's nonsense. The fact is, until the institutions are rescued from whatever has captured them, we are stuck with the system uh, of podcasts and substacks because it at least has some capacity to actually uh, resolve a coherent picture. So I don't like that at all. I look, I invested in science. I want to live in a world where we have scientific institutions that are capable of enlightening us and allowing us to steer away from self-harm based on insight. But that's not the world I'm living in, and I know it. Yes. And until then, what I'm going to have to do is I'm going to have to go to the places where the exiled yes. adults are, and I'm going to have to listen, and I'm going to have to do my sorting. Which of these people really are the exiled adults trying to tell me something, and which of them are fakers? And that's not an easy job, but um, the institutions so routinely fail now, we don't have a choice. Yes. Yeah, and I'm glad we're saying this openly and, get, and getting this out of the way, because there seems to be some confusion on this front as if we don't want institutions or we think we can just do this by po no 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 we every we, we want institutions aside from some anarchists who don't want any reliable authorities and just want you know the public to decide everything we as reasonable people want institutions right but the institutions have failed so much you have you know publications on Substack you know some individual writers earning millions of dollars and doing so well and podcasts excelling to the point of just absurdity because the mainstream messaging on this front has been so disastrously wrong, disastrously wrong over and over again to the point where it's like, when can I go back to trusting you know, the CDC and the FDA? They continue to fail us more and more continuously with the new push for the booster, which we can talk about. It's like they're continuing to embarrass themselves in a way where if you were mildly critical of them before or were critical in some ways like you know it's like the, C the cdc and the fda and the, the, the surgeon general's office and the biden administration and the trudeau government and mainstream you know pediatricians and 
you know many doctors near you all you know have this 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 kind of false consensus in my view but there is this consensus among our scientific institutions right now that you should get the new updated booster shot right which has been tested in moderna in 50 people which by the way there was one incident that required medical attention one serious adverse event in that 50 person trial so one in 50 for whatever that's worth. And we don't know what exactly happened there. And we're looking for, like, we, we hope they can tell us what is that myocarditis or uh, an autoimmune issue or is that a heart attack? Like, what is that? I don't know. And then the Pfizer arm, you have a test in 10 mice. And that we ram through emergency use authorization, which deliberately allows you to cut corners and to speed up the approval of a drug or vaccine because of a, of a, of a perceived or purported emergency. This is the mainstream messaging now. Get the new booster shot. It is safe and effective, and we know this to be the case. And you have people previously who were um, in agreement with the messaging, people like Dr. Paul Offit saying that, I, I don't see the evidence here. You know, Maybe for people 65 and over, I'm not getting this, even though I believe Paul is like 72. So you know he's not getting this himself. Um, yet the CDC and the, and the FDA want you to get this. And so th this is a big question for people who um have been on the side of, of defending these institutions and not um being honest about what's really going on is do you agree with the fda and the cdc right now and if the answer is yes if you think that they are right in pushing every american by the way not, not just like adults but i'm almost certain it's six months and older but it, um at the very least all you know children of a certain age i'm pretty sure it's six months and older actually they want everyone boosted with the new COVID shot. If you agree with that, well, I, I feel like we, we can't explain anything to you anymore because even people who were previously in accord with those institutions are now in disagreement with them. I mean, I mean, just, just so many people that disagree with that now. But if you don't agree with them now, which I suspect some people are in that boat, well, why not? Why not be in agreement with them? Why not just default to the CDC and the, the FDA, if you trusted them previously, you know, you know, where's the line between where they were wrong and where they were right. And, 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 and there, there has been some people who have said, well, you know, I think they are right. And I'm going to be getting this shot, like the annual flu shot without at all acknowledging that those are two very different things. The flu shot has been tested for decades and decades, and we know the safety profile. It's nothing of the sort. Um, that we have with these mRNA vaccines. So it's it's honestly just an absurd, um, ridiculous claim to make that the, 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 those two things are somehow um, similar. But th this is where we are right now, where the FDA and the CDC continue to zealously push for these pharmaceutical products absent safety and efficacy. Well, I want to look at it from a different perspective. <clears throat> if this had been an honest effort to keep the public safe, then it would update with information about the fact that the vaccines did not turn out to be safe in the way people had initially portrayed them, nor did they turn out to be effective in the way people initially portrayed them. That would cause you, if, this, if it was originally an error, then the messaging would rapidly shift in the direction of, you know, 
not children should be getting their booster, but children should under no circumstance be getting this booster. And, you know, if we, if we were now pushing it only towards people who were old and had multiple comorbidities, you could at least imagine that this was an honest effort to update with information. The yeah. fact that the messaging doesn't change at all says, it's, wait a minute, and this is insane, an advertisement. Brad. It's this insane. is an advertisement for a product that is now being broadcast through an official channel. And I want to go back to the issue um, of <clears throat> institutions. Mm -hmm. I take no responsibility for doing this work outside of an institutional framework because I have been shouting about the problem of capture for at least 20 years. I had been trying to call attention to the fact that this capture was creeping and that it was escaping the original conceptualization of the capture of the regulators, and it was taking over institution after institution. We are now finally at a place. It's like if you had been on the Titanic and you had been talking about the defects in the boat's design and the... Um, insanity of speeding through the North Atlantic when there were obstacles and then it hits an obstacle, then the point is, well, I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you that this was going to happen. I'm not arguing that lifeboats are a solution for the North Atlantic in the winter. They're right. not. But they're better than nothing. And the fact that we are left with lifeboats is the fault of the people who designed the ship, didn't put enough lifeboats on it, and then allowed the captain to speed through the North Atlantic to set a record. Right? So the point is, yeah. Podcasts, Substack, those are lifeboats. Nobody is arguing that's the right way to get across the Atlantic. Yeah. But, but I, I don't know why that's the position then. Like why some people, is there some weird straw man thing going on that like maybe we, some people think that people in our camp, you know, whatever camp you and I, wherever you and I converge or diverge, whatever, but this sort of alternative side to COVID that we think that we can get through this with Substack and podcast only and that we don't want institutions. Like, like we agree we need institutions, so I, I don't know what the point there is being made, to be honest. Right. I mean, my, my I, point I, I is yeah. if, if, if I'm some of our friends are talking about this as if we are not interested in institutions, <laughs> the fault is on them. They yeah. should have listened earlier when the institutions might have been salvageable. And the fact is yeah. they're gone. Those institutions no longer function. And you can tell because they're not updating their advice in light of evidence. Right that we now have. And in fact, the irony of the whole situation is to the extent that the institutions are now grudgingly talking about things like myocarditis, adverse events, age stratification, all of these things, to the extent that these things have percolated into the public conversation, it's only because of the unregulated space of Substacks and podcasts that that discussion ever broke. Otherwise, we would, mm, we would be told right now that uh, this had been a spectacular success and it had demonstrated the power and safety of the mRNA vaccine platform. That's what they would say. And the fact is they still do say it, but they can't say it with a straight face. And lots of people push back because we managed to get enough experts in front of the public by not going through the institutions. That's right. what we did. Yeah. And it, it's to me, it's a very weird, biased focus of only focusing on and and I'll I'll get in a minute to the other side of the problem, which which does exist. But there's this weird lack of focus, lack of coverage, this transparency about the continued mistakes and dishonesty on the part of CDC and FDA. Like CDC had, um, um, you know, is up until very recently, 
continuing to say that for this new booster shot, the the risk of vaccine myocarditis is lower than the risk of myocarditis from COVID. Therefore, all young boys and girls and everyone should be getting this. You have Ashish Jha, the COVID White House coordinator, saying that if you get this new booster shot, your risk of hospitalization and long COVID will go down <laughs> if you get this thing. Complete bullshit scientific claims that have no, I mean, they're, they're unscientific, that have no basis in reality. These people, it is not, it is not exaggeration to say that these people are propagandists on that front. Okay. They, it doesn't mean that they're totally wrong about everything. I'm sure some of these people are nice and ethical in other ways and have credentials that are solid, you know, and whatever. But I don't, they, I don't they, know. I don't know why you would say that. They are lying to the public in ways that will put young people who should not be placed in danger into danger. I don't know why you'd make excuses for them. No, 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 I'm not making excuses. I'm saying they might be right about other things potentially, but they are so wrong about this thing that it's that we would agree it's disqualifying. To me, it that's is disqualifying. Like saying that this person uh, who just plowed their vehicle into uh, a, a crowd, think of all the people they didn't hit. Yeah. Right? My feeling is no, this person just sure. recklessly operated their vehicle in such a way they just killed a bunch of people. That's all I'm interested in talking about, actually. The fact that they might yeah. not have killed other people or sure. they might have a you know a perfect pitch or whatever we might say in their defense is irrelevant. Yeah. And there's an important point to be made here of if you don't want to listen to me or to you or to Joe or Jay Bhattacharya or Martin Koldorf or whoever, listen to the people in these organizations who have been dissenting on this front. Okay? You have winter of 2021 – Two top senior officials at the FDA were part of the vaccine approval process. You can look this up. Um, they had a piece in uh, the, Was the Washington Post. It was, uh, I believe the names are Dr. Philip Krauss and Marianne Guber, if I'm getting that right. They openly said, we are leaving the FDA because we feel politically pressured to approve the, the, the booster shot in young, healthy people for which there's no evidence for. We feel... We are being pressured or coerced in some way to push things that have no scientific basis. Therefore, we're leaving the organization. Okay. And, and there's many other examples too. You had, there's a great piece in Barry Weiss's Substack, um, maybe last year, I think, with Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue and, and Dr. Marty McCary, who have various contacts in the CDC and the FDA. And honestly, th this piece w was quite incredible and should be reread many times over and should be taken so seriously because they, they had connections at the FDA and the CDC and many people at these institutions told, and I wrote this down actually, because it was so striking to me. And I, I, I remember reading the piece at the time and then I, I just got the quotes again for us today because it reveals so much of what's going on. Top CDC officials quoted in this article in, in Barry's Substack at the FDA and the CDC saying things like, this is a horror show. For kids, you can inject them with this COVID vaccine or squirt it in their face. It's just as effective. Uh, one uh, uh, official, um, I, I didn't write down here, it was it CDC or FDA, one of the two, saying it seems criminal to push these shots, to push these shots, uh, these mRNA shots in kids. One FDA official saying, if you speak honestly about this, you get treated differently. This is not this is not my quote. This is not my opinion. This is people within those fucking organizations who are trying to do good, who feel stifled, 
who feel like the way that their organization is being run is completely corrupt and dangerous and not actually in the you know solely serving the interests of the people but actually um violating informed consent and pushing products where they're actively dangerous and lack the data on efficacy this is this is these people so can we trust the fda and the cdc when people in their own organizations irrespective of what you and i think are saying on this topic can we trust these places yeah clearly not and for dozens of different reasons um <clears throat> i would also point out you know in light of your uh your point regarding the was it a white house spokesperson who was saying that uh the vaccines reduce long covid and hospitalization right the new um, sure this is an increasingly obvious pattern where people who are in a position that they have to know better say things that will not fool anyone who is informed but will successfully fool people who are ignorant. And we saw this a couple days ago with the Nobel Committee that awarded <clears throat> the 2023 Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine for the pseudouridine uh, alterations to the mRNA transcripts in these very vaccines. And in their press conference, in describing this award, they specifically say in response to the question from a Chinese journalist who asks, we don't know anything about the long-term impacts of these vaccines. Are we worried about this? They assure her that there's nothing to be worried about in part because the mRNAs uh, are so transient in their existence in the body. That's absurd in light of the fact that they just gave a Nobel prize for the pseudouridine enrichment that causes these things to become durable. So they're representing this as something that has gone within <clears throat> days to a week when we actually know that these things persist in the body for months. So the Nobel Committee has awarded, uh, has awarded a Nobel Prize for the stabilization of mRNAs that makes them long lasting. And in the press conference, they tout the ephemeral nature of these uh, mRNAs as a reason to be confident that there are no long-term effects. It's a preposterous statement. What are you to do with the fact that the committee that just gave the award is now saying something in direct contradiction to the very mechanism for which they just called the world's attention? It, it's preposterous. Right. The only person that could fool is somebody who doesn't know what's going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And on the question of long-term safety, there's been some interesting recent data, and I I feel like I I skipped over a couple things I should I should have said earlier. Um, I'll just maybe quickly go into that uh, with with respect to you know what I've been writing about and how I came to form my perspective on this. Um, so if, I'll quickly just back up here quickly and just say that um, when I started going independent and started hearing about these stories of vaccine myocarditis, I then delved into the data and found a serious uh risk for myocarditis up to one in two thousand um young men in particular concentrated in moderna dose two um but and it, there's a lot of data points that i can go into there but that alone doesn't tell the full story because there's, there's so much else going on so many other data points that 
show that this is a far bigger risk than we thought it was, even among the people who have acknowledged that, oh, okay, Moderna dose two, don't give it to young boys, give it to everyone. It's like, there's a lot more going on here. And what I started doing was tracking some of the international data, countries that keep a close database on this. And I found that in 2021, you had countries like Israel, France, uh, Germany, and a select few US hospitals for which I could find data had striking increases in myocarditis, myocarditis rates in 2021, but not 2020. Increases of up to 30%, 75%. There was one peer-reviewed study in particular by Dr. Retsif Levy, who's a, a MIT researcher. Uh, this was in uh, Nature, which found um, in Israel, where they keep a close database of 911 calls, he basically put together 911 calls for acute cardiac events, versus the distribution of mRNA vaccines and finds a direct, not, not a causation because you couldn't prove that there, but a direct correlation between distribution of mRNA vaccines goes up, suddenly big spike in 911 calls for acute cardiac events, specifically in 16 to 39 year olds in both men and women. I believe actually the study, strangely enough, showed a bit of a higher rate among women by some slight margin, which uh, poses, I that as well. poses some strange questions there. But you had data like that where it was unequivocal, um, increasingly so with, with more and more other studies um, as well, where you, you have the reported cases of myocarditis, right? Cases that fall under the clinical diagnosis. But then you also had studies, and weirdly enough, not in the U.S., but in other countries, studies that looked at subclinical myocarditis, so patients that weren't necessarily presenting um, symptoms and weren't admitted to the hospital. But right. upon- these, these were patients who were surveyed for a marker of myocarditis without having sought treatment. So these are people yep. who had it when they looked into them, but there was no reason to think they had it at the point that their blood was looked at. Right. So there's one Thai study in particular and it was very, very small. So, you know, you can make it that way you will. But it was a couple hundred uh, young kids, 13 to 18. After the second Pfizer dose, about 3% of those uh, young kids had evidence of myocardial injury. 1% was clinical myocarditis, but 2 to 3% overall of subclinical plus clinical. A lot of those cases were subclinical, as in elevated troponin levels, which show evidence of some... Um, myocardial um, damage that um, is, you know, as the study author said, likely short term, easily resolvable, um, at worst a few months. And for my interviews with people, if you get clinical myocarditis, it takes several months of no exercise, no, um, uh, you know, elevating your heart rate is a potentially dangerous thing. So doctors recommend you to stay away from even like walking fast upstairs and they're given a bunch of medications, long-term effects not known, but there was one recent study from Hong Kong that came out this summer and I delved into it with my friend, uh, Dr. Nish Koka at uh, uh, Koka Cardiology in Philadelphia. And we went into it and the the study showed over 50% of people who in this study sample, um, primarily young people who'd gotten vaccine myocarditis, over 50% of them at the one year follow-up had evidence of scarring in their heart muscle, over 50%. And this jives with other CDC data as well, where you look at the long-term six months, eight months, one-year follow-up, 
and you have a significant percentage of people that have not recovered. That is so alarming. And I mean, it just, the fact that these things were pushed without knowledge of these things. And eventually when we did find more and more evidence that these things were, that these vaccines were dangerous, particularly to young people, the fact that they were continually pushed without informed consent to me is, is just completely outrageous and perhaps even criminal when no, we look it, at, yeah. It's beyond criminal. So the fact that they continue to be pushed in a non-age stratified way is the indication that whatever is driving this policy does not care about killing young people because you could with no harm, irrespective of how good these vaccines uh, are, you could, with no harm, exclude young people from the risk that they apparently face disproportionately by excluding them from this campaign, and healthy young people do not die of COVID. So the fact is, you, the obvious thing to do from, from the perspective of public health is to recommend against and actually to forbid healthy young people from getting these vaccines. And if you feel that they are necessary for older people, which I do not, but if they have a disagreement about that, they could advise them for older people. The fact that they don't do that means that they are willing to have young people die needlessly. People who yeah. get no benefit from these shots. And, you know, let's put it this way. I don't know if it's technically criminal what they're doing, right. but it is yeah. beyond criminal. And in fact, that's the point about the Nuremberg Code. The violation of informed consent is above the question of the law. This is a set of questions, a set of moral questions over which the West literally hung seven doctors for violating informed consent before it was even codified. The idea being that for a doctor, it was so obvious that a patient had the right to informed consent that to violate that right was a hanging offense. And somehow at this point, it's, it's a nothing burger. We just violate people's informed consent. We give yeah. them vaccines we know a lot about the hazards of and don't tell them. We don't tell them about the contents. We don't tell them about the impurities. We don't tell them about any of the things that they would need to know to make a reasonable yeah. choice. It's insane. Yeah, and, and we should bring in one other data point here is the, the fact that this isn't just myocarditis either. And there's this weird straw man where some people say, well, okay, myocarditis, young boys, don't give it to them. Everyone else get it. But no, it's, it's not just that. And the best study we have on the overall adverse event rate comes from Dr. Joseph Raymond, um, who led the study. It was published in the journal Vaccine, arguably the foremost reputable uh, institution for um, looking at these things. And him and, and on his team were people like uh, Dr. Uh, Sander Greenland, one of the most renowned biostatisticians in the U.S. He's at UCLA. Dr. John Kaplan from Stanford it's, and, and many other um, distinguished people in their field. Peter Doshi. Dr. P I was going to mention P Dr. Peter Doshi, who's an expert in um, pharmaceuticals. And they, they just went back from the original trials and just counted the serious adverse events and, um, and and they were blinded in a way that was quite compelling where we had Freeman on our podcast recently, uh, Dr. J interviewed him and uh, he was telling how he was blinded. So he didn't know which adverse event was from the placebo or the vaccine arm and him and his review board looked at every single serious adverse event and counted them and found that in the Pfizer, in the Pfizer study, 
the serious adverse event rate was about one in 550. Combined with the Moderna, when you add those two together, you have an average serious adverse event rate of one in 800. So that includes myocarditis, it includes menstrual irregularities, it includes autoimmune issues, blood clotting, et cetera. Serious, serious adverse events is what they were looking at. These are not minor things. The, the, these are, yeah, these are serious adverse events. And the conclusion of their study was that the overall rate of adverse events exceeds the purported reduction in hospitalization from COVID vaccines. And they very clearly said it's possible that these vaccines on a cost-benefit analysis could be favorable in people over the age of 65. But you go lower down the age gradient, 50, 40, 30, especially among healthy people, it's very likely, perhaps almost certain, that the cost-benefit analysis, looking back on this, has been negative for vaccinating young and healthy people with the mRNA shots. Yes, I think in, it is increasingly clear that the mRNA shots are net negative, at least the way they've been deployed and probably under any circumstances. But about that study, I want to make it very clear for people who are listening. That study found an overall one in 800 rate of serious adverse events, but it only covered the very short period of the trial itself. In the case of Pfizer, that was literally one month. So these are adverse events that happen within one month of getting the shot. This says nothing about what the actual rate of adverse events is, because we now know that adverse events actually extend way into the future for these things. And this is also for uh, a limited number of inoculations. We don't know what happens when you've gotten, you know, two shots and two boosters or whatever it is. So this is the low estimate for how common these serious adverse events are because it was over a very limited window of time and without four boosters or four shots. So um, you have to extrapolate. What is the actual rate of adverse events if we weren't just looking at the trial data, but we were looking at the people who had gotten those initial shots and then had continued on? And the fact right. is there's a, there's a reason that we don't know which is that pharma plays a little game, which is as soon as it has demonstrated what it regards as high efficacy, it is deemed unethical not to vaccinate everybody in the study, including people in the control group. So what happens is they eliminate our ability to see what the actual adverse event rate is because everybody is now in the vaccine group rather than the placebo group. Right. That's a trick they play so that we cannot see the actual rate. And even with that trick, we've got a one in 800 rate of adverse events or serious adverse. Events. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And to go to your point about it doesn't capture everything. The that subclinical rate that we found in that one tie study, which, by the way, was replicated in a couple of other small studies, too. And again, they're small, so we don't really know. But subclinical myocarditis, we really don't know what the rate of that is. Like how many young people's hearts have been damage to some degree, whether that's transient or long-term, we don't know. What is that actual percentage? We really don't know. And the studies that were supposed to be done on this, by the way, that are apparently complete, that there's some interesting uh, sort of behind-the-scenes stuff about this that we really don't know. But my friend uh, Jessica Adams on Twitter, she's for some reason been just amazing at at just pursuing this constantly. Um, the Pfizer and Moderna were mandated to complete subclinical myocarditis studies, particularly in young males. And that was due, I believe, in uh, December of last year. And they got an extension to like June. And we still don't have the results for that. 
And I'm getting very, very suspicious, not being conspiratorial, but I'm getting very suspicious about why aren't those results being released now? It could be, it takes time or whatever, but how many billions of dollars have they generated? How many studies could they have done? They, this new booster shot, they, they could have done a proper randomized controlled study and enlisting large numbers of people. They have the money for that. They have the resources for that. They could have gotten the subclinical study done way earlier than it's being done. And I, and I wonder, is it did, did they want to push this new booster first and you know tell people to get it before they release the subclinical? But that, that study was due many, many months ago, and we still don't know the results for that. And, and one other thing I'll say about that study, Brett, is many people don't know that vaccines have been pulled off the market for adverse event rates far, far, far lower than this one, right? Rotavirus vaccine was pulled off the market for an adverse event rate, serious adverse event, event rate for one in 10,000. Yeah. Swine flu vaccine, I believe in 1976, was pulled off for one in 100,000 adverse event rate. These yeah. vaccines... This best available evidence, if there's better evidence, someone can show me, but the best available evidence in, the, in, in this, particular, this particular study shows 1 in 800, and this, this lines up with- 1 in 800 in the short period of time it, during it, the trial. We don't know about subclinical myocarditis. We don't know. I mean, there's recent studies on breast milk. There's a study in The Lancet that, that confirmed a previous study from last year showing that traces of mRNA were found in breast milk for a certain amount of time after the vaccine's uh, even though we, even though the CDC and the FDA said this was unequivocally safe and effective for pregnant and breastfeeding women, not only that they could take it, but that they should take it in light of this evidence. And there's recent studies also about the vaginal bleeding risk, which again, we talked about before that have conf more and more just confirming these risks that I've been talking about for a couple of years, things that initially would brand you a conspiracy theorist there, there's an important point here we should make, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this as well, is that the, the pushback that we're going to get about talking about this is, oh, this is just the evolution of, of the science, right? This is things that we're learning about, and we but can if that change were our true, If that were true, the messaging would change. And they, for example, in, a, in uh, advance of them releasing their subclinical myocarditis study, they might advise that young people hold off until those results are out. And the fact that they are allowing young people and in fact pushing young people to get these vaccines before that evidence emerges says that the, they are not interested. This is not evolving science. In fact, what they're doing is resisting whatever might be in that data. You know, pe people have not updated their models sufficiently. Certainly the CDC and the FDA hasn't. But there are people saying, well, things have changed now but I wasn't wrong at the time, and I, I'll specifically say this is one of Sam Harris's claims is, well, I wasn't wrong at the time in July and August of 2021 to openly use my podcast as a platform to explicitly advocate for not only why maybe you could get the vaccine or why it might make sense for some people, but why the case for getting vaccinated is absolutely clear cut. That was the message that I got from the Making Sense podcast in July and August of 2021. And that message was sculpted and sourced from someone like Eric Topol and Nicholas Christakis, who are the, 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 the chosen experts on that podcast. Anointed. The, yeah. And it's, it's not just a matter of the science has evolved on this and now things have changed. At that time, you were wrong to say the case for getting vaccinated is absolutely clear cut. At that time, we were not sure about safety. We had some evidence of blocking transmission for some period of time. We knew people over 65 were at higher risk. 
and we should potentially concentrate on them and arguably give them the vaccine. Um, I believe that was actually your position, Brett. I, I believe that might have been a, a Substack piece on Heather's pot on, on Heather's Substack, or you guys talked about it. But I believe that was the initial uh, uh, perspective on your and Heather's part that this this seems to make sense or could make sense for over sixty five. But this idea that everyone should be getting this thing at that time was wrong, especially when many other experts disagreed on that point. Right? I spoke to Jay Bhattacharya, you know, in that that exact time. And Martin Koldorf and many other people, Marty McCary, they were saying something very different than Eric Topol was. They were saying, actually, we don't really know. And, and, and that's, I mean, in, in terms of safety and long-term efficacy, we're not really sure. We know who's at risk. And based on that, we can make a rough calculation of who should be encouraged to get this thing while telling them that we're not really clear about the exact risks. But there was that epistemic humility of here's what we know here's what we don't know. Epistemic humility does not say the case we're getting, this experimental inoculation is clear cut. Epistemic humility is saying, here are the benefits, or here are the seeming benefits, here are some of the risks, here are the unknowns. You, here's my decision, if you want to say that, but you should decide um, for yourself and make an informed decision, and we shall wait to see what the emerging evidence shows. At that point, Many people made that mistake of being advocates for these shots, and they frankly have failed to update their model accordingly with the, the highest quality evidence on the risks associated with the mRNA vaccines. Well, it's uh, it's worse than that. I do not remember <clears throat> Sam's particular formulation, but the argument that the uh, evidence available at that time made it clear cut means that there was not enough room left in the unknowns for that conclusion to change. So the fact that the conclusion has now changed means that what was said back then was far too certain. And a failure to acknowledge that is part of a broad pattern, I'm afraid to say, on Sam's part of being unwilling to look at his own record and extrapolate from his failures. And I don't, I don't want to focus terribly much on yeah. Sam. I know he's released some recent stuff, which I honestly have not seen, but um, I do know that you've been in contact with him and you might have some things that you want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it's a private communication and it's, it's interesting watching. I saw Sam on Lex's podcast and, I mean, in in general, Sam has been very openly critical about you and Joe not pulling back any punches. But he he similarly, I mean, he, he was talking to Lex about how he reached out to Elon for spreading misinformation on COVID, and he, he reached out to him and it failed. And I feel a similar way, but of a different viewpoint of of me trying to reach out to him. Credit to him for taking me very seriously and engaging with me over a very extended. Um, chain of emails and going back and forth over data. I, I really credit him for that. Uh, and generally, I'm a big, a big supporter of his and I, of, of particularly his Waking Up app, which I think is a phenomenal resource for mindfulness and for understanding some of our core um, spiritual questions about the illusion of self and of ego and of our obsession with our own thoughts, etc. And so I, he's been a hero of mine for so, so long. And there might be a book in the back which he authored, which I think uh, was and is incredible. But on this front, I've just been, 
again, without getting into the private communications, because that's ethically, I feel like that's not right. And and by the way, I, I've also been hesitant to really openly talk about him over and over again, because I, I at some point, I feel like a, a public conversation with him might be the right way to go on some platform. And I, I want to be careful in what I say. But in in summation, I've just been very, very disappointed in the way he's handled this, given his previous messaging has been all we have is conversation. Ultimately, civilization depends on our ability to have a reasoned conversation on very important topics. And yeah, he said he said the alternative that we have is violence. That's that's literally yeah. the way he has laid out the case. And he has also said that um, when one says something and it turns out to be incorrect, the right thing to do is to fix it as quickly as possible, that that is by far the best course of action. And so his continually doubling down on wrong formulations in this case and his refusal to discuss this in particular with me is very strange in light of beliefs that he has been perfectly clear about. Yeah, and, and this whole line of, well, I'm not an expert, so I'm not the right person to talk to. Brett's not the person to right talk to. It's just this weird disconnect there of, on the one hand, the case for getting vaccinated is absolutely clear cut, and here's why you should get it, and here's why I got it, and everyone, you know, I think should get it, minus you know, young boys. That's one concession you made. You're saying that with such certainty and very little humility, but then also saying, I'm not the expert. Don't listen to me. I'm not the guy. Neither is Joe. Neither is Brett. You know, neither is whoever. It's like either you talk about this issue, which he did and took a position, right? His position was not, I don't know. People should, you know, here's what I'm doing. I'm getting the vaccine and my kids are, and you can decide for yourself. His thing was advocating other people do this. And, but then at the same time saying, I'm not the expert. It's like, you can have it one way, right? Either you have a perspective, in which case you should de defend it and, and talk to people who are critical of it. And he, he's been doing some recent interviews that I think were, um, I mean, he, he spoke to Majid uh, at some point uh, earlier this year and I listened to, and I, I thought, I, I love Majid and I, you know, I still like Sam, but I, I thought it was kind of a failure because it was way too sprawling and way too all over the place and focusing on a lot of macro issues without kind of drilling down on some very fundamental points about what was you know, what mistakes were made, but this, this overall shift that I, 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 that, that he's taken where it's like previously the, the kind of bravery and courage and conversational skill and aptitude that I saw with Sam was getting in the ring with Christian fundamentalists, you know, advocates for Islam and debating them people on the BLM side. There's one debate I remember actually with this one um, comedian with, I think Joe was there and, and openly talking about police shootings and racial profiling, etc. Openly going into that dangerous territory and holding his ground, right or wrong. Like there was an infamous debate with Cenk Uger about Islam, which fantastic debate and actually defending his position to now, well, we can't really, you know, unlimited conversation is not the right way. And this is not something that I'm going to get into. I'm not the expert. But also, you should get the vaccine and you should get boosted. It's like, what? That doesn't make sense. Well, since you raise the issue of his talking to Majid, I would also point out he's <clears throat> talked to Russell Brand. Yeah. Um, I also and, thought, by the way, that that was – I liked the conversation, but I thought it was a failure again. Just overall, 
it was just too sprawling, not enough time, I feel like, and too all over the place. Like, there needs to be a sit-down conversation. And at some point, I'd love to, to talk to Sam about this and be like, okay, 2021, this was your position. Here's where I think you got it wrong. Like, go point by point as opposed to these big macro discussions where all the specifics get lost in my perspective. Well, I, I hope he takes you up on that. But the fact that he's willing to talk to Russell Brand yeah. and Majid Nawaz, but not me. And also he's expressed he's willing to talk to Joe. He's openly said that several times. He's happy to go on Joe's podcast. Yep. Um, the fact that he would talk to these people whose position was not in any way less extreme than mine. I don't think mine was extreme, but the fact that there uh, is not a tremendous amount of difference in the hazard uh, that I view these vaccines uh, as being versus what Majid believes, for example, and yet he's willing to talk to Majid and not me, suggests that there is something about a conversation with, frankly, somebody who knows a lot more about this topic than he does uh, that he is shying away from. And frankly, at this point, I have bent so far over backwards to provide mechanisms that would allow him to engage in this without me pulling a gotcha on him, um, that I think at this point, it is fair to read his um, uh, unwillingness to talk to me on this topic as a forfeit on his count, on, in his case. He is forfeiting by refusing to discuss it, and he no longer has uh, any excuse based on uh, platforming or whatever because his conversation with uh, Majid and Russell Brand uh, and his willingness to talk to Joe all suggest that this is um, somehow about uh, about me and not about the topic. Yeah, and I feel like you should, you've, you've already said this before, but let's just do do it again in case he's listening. Like, you're happy to talk to him. You bring your expert, he brings his expert, and you can decide beforehand which studies to talk about and which topics to focus on. You're willing, you're willing to go on you know, whatever po Joe's podcast or you know, I'm happy to moderate a discussion. You're happy to bring whatever expert you want. And you're letting, to him, you're letting him bring whatever person he wants to bring to the table. Like you, you're willing to do basically anything to talk to him. Well, that has been my position. There's some point at which I show up to the field of play and he doesn't yeah. show up. And my feeling is, okay, then you take the L then you're telling us that you're not capable of, uh, of prevailing in such a discussion. And that's why you're not showing up. So what we, you know, I'd rather we do this with a discussion, but no, at this point, uh, Sam has lost. His recent podcast, the postmortem on COVID, I, I listened to it and, and again, I'm listening to it and I just feel like it's, there's some serious fallacies and a misunderstanding of what's going on. Just there's a couple things in particular that really struck my attention. One in particular was this complete misunderstanding of we alluded to this before of who's at risk of COVID versus who's at risk of vaccine injuries. And his point was we administered the COVID shots, and if we if we believe there's the the benefit for mortality, especially in older people, the amount of lives that vaccines have saved, even if 20 people, 200 people, 2,000, I believe he went up to 20,000 people died from the vaccines. He's like, there's nothing to talk about. It's no big deal because on a cost-benefit analysis, it makes sense. Just like, you know, for example, driving cars on highways, right? We There's a number of, a staggering number of fatalities, tr complete tragedies that we accept 
because we want to get to places on time. We accept that as a society, that some number of people are going to get killed on highways every year because of efficiency and because of the way our society runs. And that's obviously, that's, Sam, involved in sophistry, because as we have made the point here multiple times on this podcast, if there were a small number of adverse events, you could reduce that number a great deal by age stratifying the application of these vaccines. And if he has not been an advocate for age stratifying these things, then he is effectively saying that a small number of deaths that are completely needless are okay with him. And they're not okay with me. Yeah, yeah let me make this very clear for him. If you know, 2,000 people, 20,000 people, whatever number of people died from vaccines, that group is concentrated among younger, healthier people that have higher risk, particularly of myocarditis and sudden cardiac death and heart attacks. And we, we think that number is very, very low on, on net, but that number exists. And there was a recent study from South Korea where they um, very comprehensively looked at um, myocarditis cases and deaths associated with vaccine um, related to um, sudden cardiac death. And they confirmed several cases of such of concentrated among younger, healthier people, particularly men between the ages of 15 and 30, but also older, where they died right after the vaccine. And there was evidence of myocardial injury. And we know this to be the case that there are some number of people that have died or had heart attacks, severe cardiac outcomes from this vaccine. And we know that group is very different from the group that's been vulnerable, um, that, that, that has been at risk for COVID. So this idea that that's a risk that we should bear, it's like, no, no, no. That, that could have been easily mitigated if we, our policy had been over 65, you should, you should get it, talk to your doctor, look at the, at the risk and benefits. Healthy young people, under the age of 50 or 60 with no comorbidities, there's not clear evidence of benefit. And that could have prevented whatever number, 2,000, 20,000. But this idea that that is a cost that is justified to bear is a complete misunderstanding of who's actually at risk of dying from the vaccine or getting serious adverse events and who's actually at risk of dying from COVID because those are very, very different risks. And we could have done a far, far better job at stratifying by age and by risk um, on this front. Well, what's more, his argument is just simply childish because he is treating this number of uh, supposed uh, acceptable losses as if that number is not climbing. And the fact is the evidence strongly supports the idea that these vaccines are invading tissues all around the body most critically the heart, but all around the body, and that when they do, they are resulting in damage to those tissues, which is going to reduce life expectancy. So the problem is we don't know the full uh, extent of years of life lost, degree to which the aging of people has been accelerated by the damage done by these vaccines. We will not know that until this cohort has moved through life, and we will only know it if we measure it. So to treat this as if we know the number and it's small and therefore totally acceptable, well, it may be acceptable to you, Sam, but that's the result of a moral defect on your part. It is not the result of a careful calculation of anything. I'm just, I'm Brett, I'm just so confused on the, this fundamental thing he, he said again very clearly on his last podcast, Sam said that if you, 
you know, didn't get the, you know, if, if someone who didn't get the vaccine um, before get before being naturally infected, I don't understand you at all. He said, I, I, I just don't get why you would make that decision. And if you got natural immunity, then okay, that, that counts for something. But before being naturally infected, I don't understand why someone wouldn't get the vaccine. That That's his statement. And I'm like, well, does that include me? Does that include my mom? Like, my parents chose not to get vaccinated um, for different reasons. Like, like who, who's he talking about there? And why do you not, like, we, we've been over this many times, I feel like. Like, it's like, we know who's at risk, right? The, the average person who died from COVID had four comorbidities. Their mean age was something like 75 or 85, was very high. We knew who was getting this. There's been multiple, multiple studies that we can talk about from Italy and Sweden showing that, you know, 98% of people dying from COVID had three plus comorbidities, et cetera. Like, like we, we know the data. So, and we knew this data at the time. This isn't just new information. So it was perfectly rational in July or August and September of 2021 to say, I'm 45 years old. I'm healthy. I don't have any comorbidities. I'm choosing not to get vaccinated or for my kids to get vaccinated. That's a rational, that was a rational position. That was not irrational or crazy. Yet for Sam, that was completely irrational. I, I don't understand why he would say that at all, to be honest. Not only was it rational, but I literally do not know a single person who made such a decision who regrets it. I know lots of people who made the decision to get at least one shot and regret it. But I literally do not know a single example of somebody who resisted the shot, as terrifying as it was to do that in the face of the kind of pressure that was exerted. But those of us who did not get the shot do not regret it because, frankly, our intuition that the shot was more dangerous than we were being told has been borne out in spades. Right. And we should acknowledge the other side, too, which is I think is important. So you had stories, real stories of there was a lot of like Christian pastors, a number of sort of elderly people, activists who were very anti-vaccine, who on their deathbed said they made a mistake and later died, people over 60. And, and, and those examples have been used by Sam and others to say, well, okay, it's clear problem misinformation with deadly consequences. First of all, again, it's the problem of stratification. Those were not 25-year-old guys. They were not 47-year-old healthy women. Those were people over the age of 65 with multiple comorbidities, which arguably initially they should have been encouraged and, and perhaps should have gotten the vaccine early on. And there could, Well, but those but, people are also downstream of a systematic campaign to represent these shots as much more efficacious than they actually are. And I don't know how deeply you have delved into Martin Neal and Norman Fenton's work on what they call the cheap trick, but the impression that these shots were highly effective was largely the result of what has to have been a deliberately constructed uh, statistical artifact, where if you shove people into the category of unvaccinated, so long as they come down with COVID less than two weeks from their inoculation, you create something in excess of 80% apparent efficacy. Even if you were injecting them with saline, you would get something like 83 plus right. percent efficacy. It's completely not about the contents of those shots. So yes, you may have people on their deathbed saying that they wish they had gotten vaccinated, but that's downstream of a campaign to portray these vaccines as much more effective than they actually were. 
So, you know, right. And then, then there's a healthy vaccine user uh, right. issue, which, which, yep. which I, I bet many of these people saying these things have no idea about the, there's reams of, of data on this, how unvaccinated people tend to be more obese, more unhealthy, higher rates of smoking, more rural areas, lower access to, or, um, uh, uh, less proper access to healthcare, et cetera. So when you compare, you know, unvaccinated people died 10 X the rate of vaccinated people, the, those cohorts are very, very different. And you can map that onto Republican and Democrat as well. Well, Republicans after vaccines died at high, it's like there, there's a lot of complexity there that you, when you're comparing those groups, you're getting a very misleading um, statistic because you're not controlling for, the relevant variables. I mean, it, it fails like a grade 12 statistics comparison, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. The, no, these things, yeah. it's yeah. just like the issue with the uh, the immunology that underlies the hazard of these vaccines. You can fool people who don't know, but you can't fool somebody who deeply understands statistics or, or immunobiology. In that case, it's clear. So what's being said is not designed to fool those people. It's designed, those people can spot it. It doesn't matter. It has to fool the public. That's the purpose. And it's very frightening to live in an era where uh, transparent falsehoods that just aren't obvious to non-experts are being circulated as if uh, they were valid science. Right. We should really get into this macro problem, which we've talked a, a bit about before, too, is, again, our focus, my focus has been, I think, correct, focusing on the CDC, the FDA, Moderna and Pfizer and the Trudeau government and the Biden men, how deeply corrupted they've been and how they've been completely dishonest on advertising and propagandizing the efficacy and safety of these vaccines. I think if we're being honest, focusing primarily on that problem as being the impetus for this misinformation problem is accurate. And I think other people's focus solely on, you know, misinformation, even if I want to talk about actual misinformation, which does exist on the other side, but focusing on RFK and Joe Rogan and you and me and other people, even if we're wrong, it's like the, the, the predominant problem is this is these institutions that have been captured, right? You don't, Ravarora would never be a vaccine skeptic, never was a vaccine skeptic before, 2021 on on COVID. Okay, the reason why I am skeptical of this, as someone who's so anti conspiracy theory, is because the FDA and the CDC have completely abjectly failed. So the problem isn't Joe Rogan. Even if you want to say Joe Rogan's wrong for argument's sake, or RFK is wrong, or you're wrong, I'm wrong, whatever. It's this is the problem. Okay, but it just so happens that at least on my front and people like Joe, you know, Joe very early on in like April of 2021 said, Hey, if you're healthy and, 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 you know, you're a 21 year old, I don't think you should be getting this thing. Mainstream media completely assailed him and attacked him for being wrong when he was absolutely right on that question. Right. He was abs- absolutely right. His intuitions now, were excellent. Now, so it's rational, I think, to predominantly focus on these institutions as the impetus for misinformation. Right. Absent the CDC and the FDA failing, I would not be writing Substack newsletters going into long form analysis on the cardiovascular impact of like it's like like that seems so just insane to me for me to for me to be writing about this out of all people right. But yep. no, no, it's put us all in a position that we did not yes. expect to be in. I want to be an advocate for an excellent vaccine to control yes. a disease that I really think is frankly more dangerous uh, than lots of people give it credit for. It's much less deadly. 
But uh, COVID, I think, is a serious disease. I would have loved an excellent vaccine. And I expected at the beginning, I expected that that's what was being delivered. And I have been alarmed into a position of having to challenge it uh, publicly, which has not been uh, fun, but we were left with no choice. Before we get into the solutions, what I I think is a good way to to wrap this up, there is the other problem of misinformation, and there is, and we should talk about it, while having the caveat of, I think, 80 to 90% of the problem has been institutional failure, and that should be focused on, but that doesn't mean that the other side is right about everything, right? And I've seen things where I've been like, this is complete bullshit. People this tendency on the other side of blaming everything on the vaccine, oh, dementia, Alzheimer's, all turbo cancers, like everything is like, we see cases, oh, that's that's from the vaccine, right? And there's been so many things that have been circulated. There's one, one piece in particular, this this blog post, this informal aggregation of, of sudden, I believe, cardiac deaths and heart attacks that Dr. Peter McCullough amplified, who I you know, ha- had respect for and I think has done some great work on this front. But he signal boosted this analysis that showed, particularly athletes, a big surge in sudden cardiac deaths and heart attacks. And but the analysis included like suicides and people that clearly did not die from the vaccine. I don't know who even authored it. It was on some weird website that I'd never heard of. And he signal boosted that and used that as a basis to say that we have clear data that athletes are dying from the vaccine at, at a higher rate, which could very well be true. But that piece of evidence was complete horseshit. And I believe he went on Laura Ingram's show um, or might have been some other anchor. I think it was Laura's show and used that as his, his basis for arguing that point. And so I look at that and I'm like, there is a problem here that we have to be honest. Not everything is from the vaccine. Myocarditis existed before. Like There were issues going on before the vaccine. Yes, we should be honest about the risks, but that does not mean we should, be, we should compromise in our honesty and the sources that we're using and demonize everything vaccine related. No, of right. course. Uh, people, I mean, look, a certain number of people, young people, spontaneously die. That happened long before COVID. Um, the tendency, you know, if, uh, why am I forgetting his name? Um, comedian on uh, Three's Company. Three's? Uh, Three's Company. He died of an aortic dissection. Uh, I'm embarrassed. I can't think of his name. But anyway, he died long before COVID. But if it had happened in the aftermath of COVID, everybody would be blaming the vaccine. So this is obviously a problem where you've got a pattern. We do appear to have a pattern of uh, serious adverse events uh, right up through death. And it is hard to disentangle that pattern, especially in light of a system that is hell bent on not investigating. We've had an adverse event (coughs) signal in the VAERS system uh, from the very beginning off the charts. And yet there is no interest in investigating what it is made of. So that has left people to do so in, uh, in environments outside of institutions that are not equipped to do this analysis properly. Obviously, there are plenty of people who are just looking to make a buck hopping on a, uh, a resonant uh, thread. So what, what do you expect? This is why you need institutions, and it's why mm-hmm. uh, those who allowed those institutions to have become corrupted uh, have put us in so much jeopardy. But, um, you know, personally, I do think there's a pattern of turbo cancers. Do I know that? No, 
because we're in an environment in which this mm. will, of course, be politicized. But it does appear to be that lots of people who didn't have cancers or had cancer in remission uh, are suddenly facing very uh, aggressive tumors. Um, you know, that could be about something else, of course. But um, I think there's a reason uh, to guess that it is associated temporarily. There's a reason to guess that it's associated with the vaccine campaign. So I don't know how to handle this. I, what I want, though, is humility. We need humility on this, not the kind of certainty of well, it's absolutely clear cut to get vaccinated. It's absolutely true that miscarriages and turbo cancers and dementia and all these things are related to the like, like we don't want to tr fall into that same trap of blaming everything on the vaccine. And I don't want to fall into flaws. any trap. What I want is a consistent standard applied to all sides. Yeah. Right. If we're going to, you know, fault people on the dissident side for errors and completely fail to notice the consistent pattern of errors coming out of the CDC, the consistent pattern of errors coming from Eric Topol, right? The consistent pattern yeah. of errors from, from Peter Hotez. Yeah. You, 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 you can find a great Substack article on Vinay Prashad's Substack of like 20 different mistakes Eric Topol's made over the past year interpreting studies or like 10 or 10 or 20 big mistakes. And it's like, why, are we, why would you ever trust this guy? Anyway. Right. So yeah. just, you know, the, yeah. the answer is, all of this is possible because of double standards. Right. And, you know, they're going to hold the dissidents to an impossibly high standard, and they're going to hold the CDC and Eric Topol to no standard whatsoever. That's not the way to do this. The way to do this is to figure out what standard we are going to apply and apply it universally, and then do a proper analysis. Exactly the kind of thing that a functioning institution would do, and we have no functioning institutions. So, um, in, in essence, those who were either um, deaf to the growing problem of capture or worse, corrupt and thought they were, would benefit from that capture have left us in this vulnerable position. So this belongs on the right. bed. And in terms of solutions, in some ways, it's kind of simple. And correct me if you feel like this is naive, but if putting aside politics, like someone like Ron DeSantis and the way Dr. Joseph Ladipo in Florida have handled COVID, they're recommending against the new booster shot. And they earlier on recommended against, particularly for younger men, and they've done some good research on this. It's like DeSantis has talked about, like, if you were to get into office, he would put someone like Jay Bhattacharya as head of CDC, like, again, putting aside politics or whatever. But it's like, I could very easily see someone else in power, Republican or Democrat or independent, appointing someone else as the head of CDC, cleaning house, having people like Dr. Tracy Beth Hogue and Marty McCary in the FDA and the CDC who are honest about which medications and pharmaceuticals we should take. It's like suddenly like that, I feel could very easily be a clear path out of this where I don't know why that's not being talked about enough. Instead, we're only focusing on misinformation. It's like if we can reform these institutions and put people in power that we actually trust. And you can look at, again, Florida as a perfect example of that, where you have Dr. Ladipo re leading the state in a way that I think has been quite impressive and, and remarkable. It's like, we can do this. We can do what Florida did and respond to public health in that way and have the right people in charge. Would well, you agree? Look, I, I agree that we have to make that attempt. But what I want you to understand is you are talking about hundreds of billions of dollars at stake at a bare minimum 
the cleaning of house would result in hundreds of billions of dollars that would not be makeable by pharma. And that's just one of the constituencies, the obvious one. So in light of a loss of hundreds of billions of dollars, how much will they spend to prevent that cleaning of house? That's, that's the point. So um, it is not as simple of, as, hey, let's get some good people in there and let them do the right thing because the force that will resist that right thing is almost unimaginably powerful. Again, I don't think we have a choice. I think this is the best shot we've got. Mm -hmm. And it's not just Ron DeSantis. I think Ron DeSantis uh, yeah. is an excellent uh, exemplar of how this should be addressed. But I also think Bobby Kennedy represents um, an excellent potential for us rescuing our system as good as we've got. And I just don't want any of us to be naive about the forces that will be arrayed against anything that poses a credible threat to the illegitimate access that these people have carved out for themselves. Right. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I think I agree with that. But like you said, I think that's our best attempt. So let's hope 2024 comes around. We have some ideal candidates challenging uh, the Biden administration and whether that's Vivek or RFK or DeSantis or whoever, um, I, I'm definitely not interested in another Trump presidency. I think that far too much chaos and yeah. just c complete politi politicization of the process. Like you, you saw Trump, Operation Warp Speed, the best vaccine we've ever seen, and they've saved this many lives. It's like yep. complete politics, whereas I feel like other other people could be far more principled um, on this front. So I, I look forward to seeing how 2024 uh, plays out. But regardless of the outcome, we should be thankful for Substack. We should have gratitude for podcasts, Rumble, these platforms, Joe Rogan's podcast. No one's saying anyone's perfect here or that there's that we're, everyone's 100% right on everything. It's like in light of all of the misinformation put out by public health and the fact that we have free platforms like Substack that won't censor, it's, 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 it's quite incredible the amount of effort that independent voices have put out there in response to this coordinated campaign to push dangerous vaccines on especially young and healthy people, which I've been railing about for a couple of years. So I, I'm, I'm thankful for, you know, such platforms. And I, 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 I hope it's not on the part of, you know, Ravarora and, you know, Joe Rogan and people on Substack, people like yourself, for us to continue to have to do this thing for the next 10 years where we can't ever trust the CDC and the FDA anymore. And the next, the next pandemic or the next medication or the next health crisis, just continually, we have to keep on fact-checking them and proving that they're wrong. Like, I hope we can get to um, a different place. But like you said, the, the layers of corruption run so deep. And with respect to where I'm going in the future, I'm going to be doing more and more coverage and exposés of the similar patterns and practices when it comes to things like mental health, which I'm very, very interested in. The way problems like ADHD and depression and anxiety, increasingly with Gen Z, is being treated with Band-Aid solutions that are blunt pharmaceutical tools that don't actually address some of the root causes um, of these problems, like not actually looking at things like intergenerational trauma and learned behaviors, but just 
popping a pill in the same way that we treated COVID. Like we didn't look at the obesity epidemic and the problem of metabolic disease and the way we handle our food and which things we consume and our increasingly sedentary behavior. Instead, we just said, get these mRNA shots, not looking at vitamin D and exercise and all these things. It's like this kind of aligns with my broader spiritual kind of explorations of how our society is falling under this reductionistic, heavy, simplistic pharmaceutical model of giving things these band-aid pharmaceutical solutions when it comes to our health, but actually failing to recognize the complexity of us as human beings in an increasingly corporate and pharmaceutical heavy environment where these consensus get erected on complex scientific topics and the actual complexity on the matter gets completely obscured. And so here we are on Substack and Rumble trying to make sense of these things. Yeah, well, I, I agree with that. I think we are going to have to, uh, to the extent that there is an electoral solution here, we are going to have to make it happen, which means we have to be ready to fight for somebody who will actually advocate for us and who can stare down uh, the forces that will be arrayed against them and are arrayed against us. Project so, Unity, Unity Twenty Twenty. <laughs> some sort of some sort of Unity Twenty Twenty Four. Sure. Um, well, Ravarora, it's been a pleasure. Um, let us point out that people can find you on Substack at Illusion of Consensus. They can also find you on Twitter. What's your handle? Uh, Ravarora One on Twitter. Uh, the Illusion of Consensus on Substack. I, uh, I encourage people to follow there. That appears to be the only kind of unfiltered, uncensored channel that I can freely put out my content. And um, I would, you know, greatly appreciate, um, you know, people, if, if they want to support us, they can become paid subscribers if they want to. But that appears to be the only kind of major channel, both for Jay and I, but for, for my independent journalism to thrive with direct reader support instead of relying on big newspapers where there's just too much suppression, too much stifling, too much censorship and too much narrativizing especially you know even in alternative places as we've learned places that again were you know, took the heretical or dissident line on social justice but on vaccines for some reason just put their fingers in their ears and just defaulted to the cdc it's it's been quite remarkable so anyway people can find me on on substack where i'm going to be doing more and more explorations of the way big pharma misinforms us and puts us in danger and takes us away from living a truly happy, fulfilling life that are addressing our core problems when it comes to depression, ADHD, anxiety, etc. There, there, there's a lot more corruption than meets the eye. And I'm at least grateful that the you know, COVID pandemic has sort of put a shining light on the inner machinery of how the sausage gets made and just how much false consensus and illusion of consensus there is on these topics yep well we're gonna have to uh recapture our system and rebuild the institutions and uh to that end rav i really appreciate your work and thanks for joining me on dark horse yeah thanks brett appreciate it be well <laughs>